What's the question? Do I make everybody hold the microphone now? Right. Is that the new thing? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And yeah, everybody goes along with it? They, they complain. They, everybody complains. Yeah, they're uncomfortable with it. But, you know, it's not about them. It's about the listener. <laughs> it's about the listener. <laughs> I have a responsibility now to my listeners to... Uh, make your guests uncomfortable. Because yeah. when you're uncomfortable, yeah. when you're on edge... Yeah you're more likely to reveal your inner workings. I mean, I thought it was the opposite for the longest time. I thought you're going to be comfortable and the microphone will disappear. I always had this idea that the microphone would disappear into the remember, furniture right. as quickly as possible and you won't even realize that we're just having a conversation, right. which I think you can do with the microphone. You're just more physically aware of the, the interview because you're holding this thing the whole time. Plus you're holding the thing... I mean, it's like, okay, let's do a conversation where we each stand on one foot. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I also, I, I do think you start to forget about it. I also think on some level it becomes a kind of a, a fidget, as Sol would say. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's something that you're holding in your hand and maybe you get distracted by it and it helps you kind of unlock, you know, the I've space. forgotten about it already. Do you know what we're talking about right now? About what? Well, so, but the question here, and this is why we're talking today, is is that because the microphone has quietly slipped into the background, or, or. is it because you have <laughs> no memory at all now as you approach 79 years of age? 79. Or, as I like to say, my fifth annual 75th birthday. Yeah. Oh, well, memory uh, definitely is the second most important thing mm-hmm. as, you, as you get to be my Oh, age. really? What's the first? I forget. As you get older, it seems, that the older memories come clearer into focus and the more recent memories kind of become a blur. Is that true? Uh, I would be hard-pressed to uh, respond to that accurately because I don't know if my long-term memory is any better than it was. And uh, short-term seems okay, but then how would I know? But basically what I notice is... Hold on, because you hear this lawnmower guy? Oh, he's back. He Mike. came back. Hold on. We're going to close back. the window. Well, I don't think he'll be around. Oh, this. We should probably uh, say that Mike across the street, yeah. he loves his lawn and his yeah. electric lawnmower. Yeah. It's going to be a three-way conversation between you and me and Mike's, and Mike's lawnmower. lawnmower. Fair enough. That's my life here. It reminds me of that line in the Donald Fagan song in uh, Kamakuriad. He's in this... Uh, a bionic sphere. He's driving down the highway. He's got a garden in the back of yeah. the vehicle. Yeah. And he pulls into the town where he was born and he says, Is that my father mowing the lawn? We reached the spring just at dawn. These little streets I used to know. That my father mowing the love that image because when somebody's mowing the lawn, it just like by definition tells me you're in the Midwest, it's mm. summertime, it's nostalgic. So that sound actually is really apropos to me, the mower. I think it speaks to a kind of stability mm-hmm. and normalcy, exactly. you yes. know, yes. and I think that the Donald Fagan character on that record is this kind of hipster with some remove Mm-hmm. You know, he's living on the margins. Mm-hmm. You know, he's gone on this kind of picaresque road trip and to 
return to the hometown and find that his father is still mowing the lawn, it's like a metaphor for an entire generation that hasn't joined the future yet. Oh, I like that. That's exactly what it felt like uh, in the 50s and 60s, that disruption of this kind of continuity. I mean, when you just think about it, you're dedicated to keeping grass at a certain length. That's, (laughs) That's a commitment of one kind. Yeah. And then he also talks on, Fagan talks on that record about this uh, bomb shelter yeah. that they've built in the backyard. That's wh- the other record. That's on the first record on Nightfly. Oh, that's right. That's right. On yeah. Nightfly. He's yeah. in the bomb shelter. Yeah. And he's partying down there yeah. with this tall blonde girl. Introduce me to that big blonde. said the, that's kind of what the 50s felt like and in, in the early 60s this double life that one could live where you could be living on the outside of the mainstream or whatever societal norms and kind of pass back and forth into it and out of it like for example you know you lived through this the radical 60s but you know you always talked about how you wore a tie to class like yeah. when you first started school you know you were real straight at least presented as straight and responsible you know like you could be a hipster on the inside and still kind of present as a very it was incredible fantastic. person on the outside it was fantastic you could stand on the corner of state street and smoke a joint and yeah. nobody knew what you were doing because yeah. nobody smoked pot then except yeah. a very small cohort or it's the same thing you know the hipsters Origin well, let's not call them hipsters. The Bohemians, eh, yeah. that's not good either. No. The Beatniks, no. Beatniks, not exactly. But whatever it was, there was uh, you know narrow ties. Yeah. You know you you look clean. You yeah. look like you were part of the yeah. the whole thing, so that you could move seamlessly. Yeah. Through the uh, sociological ecology, mm-hmm. <laughs> you could you could come and go as you wanted. You could be in control of whether you were challenging authority uh, then subject to harassment Mm -hmm. or uh, moving on nice to see you Uh, it was really wonderful in a way because there were these little codes and signals that you recognized each other yes i used to refer to them as first degree searchers yeah when you think that you're a first degree searcher that is you're on the path you're going to figure something out you're going to get to the bottom of this you're going to find out the meaning of of Life, I don't, not life, the meaning of what you are about. And then you see somebody else and just in the moment. Yeah, you recognize one You recognize, oh, this person's on a path also. I think about how different the experience of reading a book, listening to a record, even learning some piece of information would be when you had to really seek it out or have somebody turn you on to it. Like the internet is the great equalizer in so many ways and has granted access to people that wouldn't have access to the information, to the music, to the culture, whatever. But it also is more disposable because it's one of any number of thousands or millions of inputs that a person can have in a day. So the idea of hearing a record, even though, you know, let's say a teenager today can fall as deeply in love with the music or whatever as you were able to at 15. I think the experience is a bit different. And likewise, 
recognizing what you would identify as a first degree searcher back in the day, somebody else who was into some aspect of what you were into and how magical that must have felt. It's a little bit dismantled today because of the internet. Well, the internet undermines memory clearly because you don't have to remember it. It's there. You can always Google it tomorrow. Yeah. You know, if you, if you forget the answer, but when you had to, you know, go to a library and a card catalog or, you know, find somebody who even knew you would tend to remember that because yeah. otherwise uh, you you were flummoxed the next time it came up. Yes. It's definitely, technology undermines memory even as it makes uh, more of the past available. Your freshman year in college, it was 1961. Mm-hmm. The distance in time between 1961 and the year 1900 is the same distance as the year 1961 and today. That's a wonderful set of uh, markers because if you think of what was a hit song in 1901, it would have been Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you'll look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. Or it's only a bird in a gilded cage, yeah. right? Then through all the 20s and the roaring yeah. 20s and the 30s and swing music and bebop and mm-hmm. doo-wop and mm-hmm. 60s and Dylan. You had that whole progression. Yes. Now, start in the 60s and go today. Yeah. And huh. what the progression is, we're still listening to uh, the jazz of the 60s or the pop of the 60s. Something happened. Popular culture seemed to have a kind of a cresting in the 60s. And I think anybody who went through it, well, everybody feels that way about their college years, yes. I suppose. But there's some evidence, yeah. whether it's Coltrane or Sal Bellow yeah. or you know Lenny Bruce or yeah. however you mark the flourishing of popular culture. Well, we weren't listening to Daisy, Daisy, tell me your answer true. Right, the culture of 1901 was not so example, important to the artists the who are still uh, alive yeah. from 1960 are still touring. Yeah. But the artists from 1901 couldn't get arrested. Got long gone. In 1961. Long gone. They were in a deli somewhere yeah. sitting yeah. around with their friends. Moving on. Let's move on. There was a moment, sometime I would say, in the last year when, you know, you were hanging out in California, pretty relaxed you know kind of like the idea of going back out on tour making more records was kind of theoretical to you Mm -hmm. but then we did we went out for like a month and we played a bunch of gigs and we're going to play more gigs this week and next week and we're going to go back into the studio and you're planning for another record next spring and i mean i don't know are you happier now that you know that it's still here for you is it just habit i'm less lonely Mm. You know, it's the people. I can stay home and play piano. Yeah. But it's lonely when you're not playing your music to an audience. Mm -hmm. The people, the musicians primarily, I mean, the audience, I love having 
a room full of expectation or people bringing their problems of the day into the room and kind of getting a sense of what that might be and kind of playing around with the the group dynamic. That's mm-hmm. all fun. I like that. But hanging backstage before the gig yeah. is so great. It just, even if nothing happens and nothing gets said, there's something in that space of being together. It's almost like uh, Georgie Fame has this idea of lerps. Lerps hmm. are long range commando type soldiers. Yeah. Uh, it was a term in uh, the Vietnam War. Uh-huh where you go deep into the jungle and you f- hide and, you f- and you're out on your own. You're on your own and you come back a month later and you report back into headquarters. Hmm. There's some of that in being on tour and playing gigs and going from place to place where at the same time, you're more exposed, you're more vulnerable. You don't have your society around you, for example, You'd uh, be hard-pressed to uh, come up with a lawyer in an hour. But when you're home, you, you can get to your dentist if you need and stuff. You're more exposed. But there's a feeling of being closer to where you're supposed to be. And I think it's because you're connected to your core group of people, whether it's the people in the band, mm-hmm. whether it's the other musicians who show up. When we were in Madrid, the cats from the horn section of the Stones came out to hear us and they couldn't come into the club because of COVID, so they sat outside <laughs> and listened. I mean, you get this feeling of um, your cohort and that helps you know who you are mm. and that makes it less isolating. Mm-hmm. Last year, we talked about pain. Oh, yeah. And a big part of what you were dealing with at that moment, as you turned 78, was physical pain. And you kind of came out and said, yeah, it hurts to be in this body and to wake up every day. It's a struggle. And, you know, so many people wrote to me and and said, you know, thank your father for saying that. And I have that, too. And thankfully, somebody's saying it, you know, because we're all here pretending that it's okay or that it feels good to be alive and i think particularly your generation is the one that has like made a an art out of staying younger longer we were exercising like crazy we were running marathons we were doing all this physical stuff so that when we came to this stage Mm -hmm. we would have a buffer between the inevitable entropy Mm -hmm. and you know our our youth Mm -hmm. still hurts i think i'm further along the path of acceptance yeah It's not as depressing as it was because here I am, it's a year later, and I'm still here. And the only time it does, I don't hurt really, is sitting at the piano (laughs) playing, which is, I mean, I don't even want to get into the psychology of why that might be. Mm -hmm. Pain is a rolling horizon, it's there. And if you hurt, there are things you can do, but the most powerful thing you can do is to distract yourself. Pain is in your head. I mean, of course, you feel it. But if you have pain and you're walking along the street, if you look up at the tree and you see the bird and you start thinking about, well, that bird, you know, birds used to be dinosaurs, feathered dinosaurs, and you let your mind wander Mm -hmm. and go where the world takes it, you soon realize you don't hurt as much anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, in a way, it's really appropriate that at the end of your life there is pain and that you have to deal with it because... Not only is it a metaphor for what life is, life is suffering. Everybody from the beginning of time has figured that out. The question is, why 
is it so hard? Why is it so hard to walk through our little 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this beautiful planet where billions of people have come before us and will come after us and we're part of this, this wonderful experience? Why is it hard? What makes it so hard? And so pain is not only a metaphor for that, but it's an opportunity mm -hmm. to figure out a ways to live with it and without it, mm -hmm. live around it. Yeah. I mean, I went uh, to rehearsal with uh, Andy Norell yesterday. I'm going to play this duet, steel pan and, and acoustic piano. And when Andy walked into the, the space, man... Anything I was worried about or physically, it just went away. Hmm. It was just being in a room with a guy and we're talking about music and we're looking at the charts and we're doing the thing. And that moment was out of time, mm -hmm. of the time of the day where it hurt to do this or yeah. to do that. That was like a, a relief. We've talked about this, even just the cover that musicians get when they go on the road, because you don't have to deal with anything other yes. than getting to the gig and playing the gig. Yes, it's a it's a real, it's one of the few respectable, in, in quotes, ways to disengage from so much of the hardship of life. I mean, getting to the gig is hard, no question. Getting paid is hard, but like you know, if you just wake up and all you got to do is travel to the gig and play the gig, there's an enormous amount of the world that you are just simply not dealing with. And it is a distraction. So, you know, Sonny Rollins hasn't played a gig in a while. Yeah. And he's not going to play any more yeah. gigs. And he's in his house in upstate New York. Yeah. And Sonny's uh, a philosopher. Yes. He's always been a philosopher. Yes. He decades ago said that he believed that this music that we play can change the world. Yes. And he said literally change the world. I'm not talking yeah. metaphorically. Yeah. This music can change the world. Yeah. Winton Marcellus said that to me at one point. He said, if people really listen to this music, it would change their lives. There, uh, he was saying a lot of people were digging him because they were told to dig him. Uh -huh. The point being, you play this music and be, you're a practitioner. And then when you can't play it anymore, what do you practice? Yeah. The larger question, of course, is then who are you? But the immediate question is how do you take those years of changing yourself from who you were before you played the music, through the music, to who you became from the music, if you can no longer play the music? Yes. I see that as a tremendous opportunity. And I don't know what Sonny Rollins feels about that. But he was always somewhat diffident about playing. You know, he stopped playing here, yeah. he stopped playing there. I think it's an opportunity that I have. Hmm. I love playing, I, I'm going to keep playing, but I also think there's something else important here. You, you have your time, you have your mm. moment, you have your journey. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, in fact, choosing not to play, as Sonny did over the years, was a real exercise of his own personal autonomy in his life. And in fact, what he said to you in that interview in the 80s was, there were too many people telling me who I was, mm -hmm. and it was getting in the way of my playing. And so I had to stop and reclaim my relationship with the instrument. Mm -hmm. 
Actually, what was happening with, with this event, I was getting a lot of play from people. Every place I went was Sonny Rollins, and, you know, oh, boy, he's the cat to see, uh, which was good, except that I didn't have the feeling within myself that I was really able to put out what they expected from me. And I remember one uh, particular job that I had in uh, Baltimore. Elvin Jones was playing with me around that time. And um, my playing, I, I felt that I disappointed the people. You know, I mean, a lot of fans were there, and they all, you know, oh, sunny, sunny, you know. But it didn't come out right, and I felt that this was because I didn't really have all my stuff together, you know. And this was really beginning to um, take me out. You know, I was really uh, upset about it, you know. So I realized, well, look, man, either you're going to stay out here and go around and and face nights like this, or you're going to try to get yourself together, you know, brush up on this, learn this, get this together, different things like that. So that's what I did. I said, well, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to appear anymore. I'm going to lay off the scene, go back into the woodshed, and get these things together. And that's basically what that uh, thing on the bridge actually was all about. And if you were to stop playing and not start again, that too would be reclaiming your relationship with the instrument. So not playing for a musician has real significance. It's not just the loss of something. It could quite, and this is my hope, of course, it could be the gaining of something. Yeah. But why, why, why talk about this? Because you are playing, and and I don't see any sign that you're not going to play. I mean, as a matter of fact, and maybe this is you telling something to yourself more than it is to me. But every time I call you, I say, "What are you up to?" And you say, I'm, "I just played for an hour. I'm going to play for an hour." I mean, playing is somehow very important to your sense of what you do in a day. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think. Uh what we're hearing is my internal monologue yeah. made apparent. And have you noticed you're still holding the microphone? I mean, this is probably some of the most internal shit you've ever said to me on, a, on an interview. And this is with you holding the microphone. I think holding the microphone unlocks something. You might be right. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> holding the microphone is the distraction, yes. like looking up at the bird in the tree. That's right. I believe that's true. People have their moment, as you say. And this is your internal monologue. Part of it is saying, okay, well, my moment may come to an end. And How can you not think? I, I've, I've always been curious about that. People yeah. in their 80s and yeah. God knows in their 90s, like yeah. we have friends in their yeah. 90s. What do you think of? How do you think of How do you mortality? not wake up every morning and think, I'm going to die? Yeah, how do you not think about the end? How do you not think about that at all times? At all because times. Because however you get through your 30s not thinking about it is the same way you get through your 80s not thinking about it. Precisely. I mean, we practice our whole lives to avoid thinking about it. Well, I come to believe that we're not supposed to think about it. You know, that's, that's not who we are or what we do. But we can't help but think of it because when I go away, does the whole world go away? No. I go away. That's it. And playing piano is one of the ways I can stay. One of the things. I mean, this is my internal monologue. I think we all have these internal monologues. We absolutely do. And I think to devote your life to 
expression, creative expression, is both a very generous act and a very also a very selfish act. Mm-hmm. So as one gets older, it, it's normal that they would be engaged in in these kinds of self reflections. Who am I and what does it mean when I can't play and, you know, and all that. I, I mean, I'm constantly questioning this. Like, is it generous or is it completely self- selfish. selfish? And, you know, and I remember that Miles said to you, well, geniuses are selfish. You know, and I'm not saying that you are, I is a genius, but but just that he, he recognized that about himself. He also said, yeah, I might do this and I might do that and I might do a lot of things, but it's always about the music. That's it for me, you know. All the rest, people think I do this, I do that, I do that. Yeah, I do that and this. You know, I might do a lot of things, but the main thing that I love, it comes before everything, even breathing, is music. That's it. You know, nothing. You know, I buy Ferraris, cars, a box, yeah, but music is always there. Right there. And that means you're going to have to keep hanging out with musicians, and you're going to have to keep your ear tuned to the radio, and you're going to have to plug in all the latest machines. Right. Because you can't go back. Mm -mm. I can't. And I think that, you know, going back to falling in love when you're 13, 14, 15 with the music is such a wonderful thing because it becomes the tentpole Mm -hmm. uh, for you. You're always circling that tentpole one way or the other. It's what we call the the stake in the river. You know, the river's going to keep trying to take you and push yeah. you downstream. And if you can stand there and experience being in the river, yeah, that's a powerful position. I don't think I can ever go back and feel who I was. I don't think it's possible. It's hard enough to feel who I am. And... I would very much like to not worry about who I will be. (laughs) I want to just settle on the first two of those three before we get to the third aspect of it. Because as we talk about thinking about death and who am I, how do I get through my life knowing that I'm going to die? I mean, I, I have often engaged in the thought experiment, well, what if I had died 10 years ago? Or five years? What if you had died 10 years ago? What would we have said about you that's different then than what we would say now? And which one is the real you? You know, which version of the story is the real story? Is it the one happening right now? Is it the one that encompasses all of our past? And I think even just in terms of the music, when you started making records, a big part of who you were and what you saw was some sense of innovation, something new, I'm going to put together these elements that I feel haven't been put together. Even on your first record, getting all those musicians in the room together and kind of trying to find some hybrid, some new thing, you know. Listen to me, you're going to get home before your time. Listen, I said you're going to get home, you're going to get home before your time. Baby, you better, you better drink. And then in the 80s with all the synths and all the technology that you got into, and 
there was a sense of searching. I don't know why, but I'm feeling so bad. I want to try something I never had. Some of your kissing, that's what I've been missing. Love I don't know if that's always sustainable. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe there's some artists out there that are just constantly searching for new. I think there are. I mean, I think David Bowie was one. I mean, I think there are some people that are constantly trying to reinvent themselves. Like Miles, man. Yeah. I mean, there's the Miles of Kind of Blue, and there's the Miles of On the Corner. Yeah, and of Tutu. And, and Tutu, and that's a, right, there's a three different people yeah. Yeah. right there. And it kind of goes against the old cliché that as you age, you go towards simplicity. Miles did not necessarily go toward simplicity in his concept, but by necessity, he went toward simplicity in his execution because mm-hmm. you can't help it. So simplicity will get you in the end. <laughs> <laughs> right, whether or not you... <laughs> you might not want to go there. You may not want to go there. Well, and the reason I bring it up is because... I don't know if it was before we talked last year or after we talked, while we were talking, we went in the studio for a day or two and we made this record of inarguably simple music. No vocals, which was a first for you. Old tunes, for the most part, instrumental swingers. And God damn it, if the thing isn't still on the radio, man. I mean, it's one of your most successful recent projects. Something about it resonated and connected and that simplicity of concept of execution worked people responded to it and think and think and think and think all day long, but in the end, it's the heartbeat. In the end, you can even think, well, it's about the heartbeat. Yeah, it's about the heartbeat whether you think about it or not. The heartbeat being something very simple. As it gets more and more complicated to be on the planet, I think we are all, I mean, I've been saying since 2016 particularly, we're all experiencing PTSD. Mm-hmm. We are. People are just (laughs) blasted by having to wake up and go through their feed. So this little element, this simplicity of feeling Mm. swing, of feeling pulse, of feeling the heartbeat. And I think the record is just like proof. It's very powerful. It's a drink of cool, pure stream water uh, compared to the products that are out there promoting electrolytes and (laughs) fake fruit flavors Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. no calories and some calories. But there are a lot of those. I mean, what's interesting is there are plenty of uh, very pure statements out there. And this is what is so interesting about records. There's really no explaining why some are more special than others. 
if there was a way to explain it, there'd be a way to duplicate it. And yeah. nobody can duplicate it. Yeah. Anybody who's had a successful record, if you talk to them yeah. and say, well, why didn't you do another one? <laughs> and they all, I, I couldn't get back there. I, do I don't know what I did. Think of Kind of Blue, how yeah. simple yeah. that was and is. You would think to yourself, well, there it is. There's a roadmap yeah. for something. It never happened again. Yeah. Nonetheless, we are going back in to try again. Next week. We're going to play some more tunes. We're going to go in the same studio, same yeah. format. Yeah. I'm going to put up the same mics. Yeah. Well, why not? Why not? Well, but why ca- not? Because I've been telling you, because we got to put video this time. Let, let's to spend a moment right here. Last time we did this, I insisted that I didn't want video in the room. Yeah. First of all, if you have video in the room, that's another thing where somebody says, oh, hold on, wait, wait one minute. Okay. No, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> I'm not ready. Right. There's that element. There's, and there's enough of that in a recording studio anyway. That's that's one thing about video. The other thing is even when you're not paying attention to the video, mm-hmm. you are actively not paying attention to the video. Yeah. It's like zero is not nothing. <laughs> zero is something. And so I'm afraid of that. But on the other hand, think about this microphone that you're holding right now. You're actively uh, not paying attention to the microphone right now. Now that you bring it up, yes. No, I get your point. I get your point. We're going to do video. But but to me, the point is more that I don't know if this is a good thing to argue for or not, but it does seem that so much music is consumed visually right now that Which, it's almost like you're not putting something out if there's not a video for it. Right, right. But as we know... Taking in an experience through your eyes and taking in an experience through your ears, these are dramatically different experiences. Through your ears, it just fires up your imagination. Yes. I told you about one of my favorite records is this record that Pharaoh Sanders made on the ESP label yeah. before he was, you know, uh, Coltrane's compatriot. He was out there in the ESP label. And on this record, he plays a rhythm tune for 30 minutes. And What's the record called? Do you remember? I could go up there and get it. All right. Should I go up there and get it? Yeah, but here, I'll hold the microphone. Oh, okay. You, you yeah, hold, okay. Go to the vinyl. The wall, of the wall of doom of vinyl. Let's see. Tyner. McCoy Tyner. No. Art Tatum. No. Gil Scott Heron. Sonny Rollins. Charlie Rouse. George Russell. Wait a minute. Where's Pharaoh? Oh, here's okay. Pharaoh Sanders. I love this. This is brilliant. On the cover of this Pharaoh Sanders record is nothing but a spiral. No name, no title, no musicians, nothing. Right? <laughs> yeah. This is some marketing genius yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> it's called the Pharaoh Sanders. It doesn't have a title. Mm. It's uh, <laughs> it was recorded in 1965. Seven by seven is one side. Uh, the A side is seven by seven, and the other side is Bertha. That's it. Jane Getz is on piano. First time I heard Jane Getz. 
Never heard of uh, the other cats. Marvin Patillo, percussion. William Bennett on bass. The reason I brought this up... Tell me. Recorded September 1964. Mm -hmm. Jerry Newman was the engineer. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the reasons I love this is, first of all, to hear Farrell play changes is is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's a great bebop player, but beyond that, he's exactly the same person who took it out a few years later. It's, it's wonderful. I adore this record is because there's something about the sound of it yeah. that I imagined this whole environment the right. first time I heard it. I imagined that I could picture the room. It was yes. a big room, funky. I could see the chairs. And down the hall, I knew there was a toilet down there. I could almost hear it flush. And I mean, in, you knew this just in your mind's eye. You saw this. In my imagination, when the sound yeah. went from the record into my brain, yeah. it generated yeah. this whole universe, yeah. which is so distinctly different from watching a video. I mean, if there had been a video camera there yeah. also, yeah. and you could see Farrell playing, yeah. it would not be as rich yeah. Or to me, as profound, because watching somebody play, you know, like we say, Charlie Parker, when he played, you couldn't even see his fingers move. Yeah. He was motionless. Yeah. Right. And also, it is to say that music is not video or f- moving images without images. You know what I mean? That yes. it's not Radio is not television without the images, without the right. pictures. It's its own format. Exactly. Maybe today we are kind of confusing those things. But ultimately, it's just because we receive all our information on the device, you know. So I think the devices are trying to take over. I think the devices, like the, the question is, is the Internet sentient yet? Yeah. Right? Everybody's uh, mm-hmm. saying not yet, but it will be one day. Yeah. I think they are. I think all our devices are connected, just like underground, mm-hmm. all the, the mushrooms mm-hmm. are connected. Mm-hmm. And they're communicating with one another, mm-hmm. and the trees are, are communicating yeah. in there. Yeah. I think all the devices yeah. are connected, and they're trying to insinuate themselves yeah. <laughs> into our emotional experiences so that we won't leave them behind. I think they're afraid. I think they're thinking of their mortality. I think all the devices are thinking of death also. And they're afraid if they don't make it important that everything is videoed. Yeah. So that they're useful, that one day we're going to wake up and go, you know what? It was better without it. Yeah, I don't, we, we don't need it. But I do think that there's this idea that you want to believe as you're going through your life that somehow something's going to be revealed to you as you get older, right? Like it's going to mean, it's going to add up to something. <laughs> it's going to add up to something. I, said, I wrote, I wrote yeah. that song. Yeah. No, it, I wrote it. <laughs> there's a man and a rock and a steep hill the sun is so hot even the shadows can kill 
He keeps right on pushing, trying to get to the top. But the forces of nature try to make a man drop. Down on his knees in a world full of pain. But time after time he gets back again. You got the picture. You got to picture him happy. You got to picture him happy. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the beauty of the myth of Sisyphus, you know. Sisyphus is happy because he's got a gig. If he didn't have to push the rock up the hill, he wouldn't have a gig. So, yeah, it's a drag pushing the rock, but at least he's employed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's a metaphor for being alive. It's a metaphor for being a jazz musician. Yeah. You know, don't you remember the good old days when we had gigs? No, we couldn't get paid. But <laughs> We didn't get hired enough and we didn't get paid enough when we got the gig, but at least there were gigs. Yeah, and the food was terrible, but the problem was the portions were so small. Yeah. <laughs> when you started out, it was a real insider's game. Yeah, totally. You know, It really was. I mean, it would be so unusual... Yeah. That any family friend of yours or anybody that you knew would say, hey, my son's going to be a jazz musician, too, or my nephew Never. you've got oh, to talk to. Nobody, nobody you knew that nobody. you can't, nobody would choose to do that. It was a real inside thing. Boy, the first time I heard jazz in a grocery store, it freaked me out because jazz was something that you listened to in the caves of your friend's apartments and uh you listened by staring into the speakers and you didn't say anything necessarily yeah except oh man mccoy yeah. really mccoy yeah that's it there was nothing to say and to walk in to a grocery store or to get into an elevator my god yeah we take that for granted that that's what god played in elevators but that was not always the case that never was, no yeah. you would never hear you didn't hear jazz anywhere you did not hear it unless you were in a, some special place with some special people and the number of people that you could talk to about it you could probably count on one or two hands even if you were in new york city and were trying to play the players that were working there were in the hundreds and maybe yeah. A thousand, you know, whatever, working. And most of the people who were working were doing weddings and bar mitzvahs yeah. like they are today. I mean, it yeah. wasn't like some, there was no jazz syllabus. It was something yeah. you discovered on your own. There's a term now, apparently, called breadcrumbing. Do you know about the term? No. Breadcrumbs is how you found your way out of the forest by yeah. dropping breadcrumbs yeah. so you can find your way. Of course, we all know that... Uh, the birds can come along and eat your breadcrumbs. And then you get eaten by the wolf. <laughs> then you get eaten by the wolf. But that's how everybody found their jazz. They yeah. went from liner note to liner note. No, it's a, very, it's a very different experience, and it, makes, it does make one feel old. And I'm sure everybody who came up from that experience feels their age. What made you think it was so important if it was so obscure? It was so important because it was so obscure. By being less obscure, did it become less important? Yes, of course. Once Time Magazine puts it on the cover, it's no longer news. Mm -hmm. It doesn't move history anymore. And yet you were very focused on capturing it, on documenting it. Absolutely, because it was so obvious it was important. It was so obvious that what was going on was historical. I mean, if history is important, 
I mean, history was important to us. That, that, that's one thing for sure. In the 60s, history was very important. And in part because there was a sense that you could still participate in it. Yeah. Now I don't think people really believe they're participating in history, mm. even as they're watching it go down. Um, mm. I mean, when the Watergate hearings happened yeah. and we saw Nixon go down, we felt we had a part in taking him down. Yeah. Students today don't put themselves on the line. I'm not mm -hmm. saying students should. I'm saying that that was a big part of being a student. Yeah. You were a student to the extent that you could take what you had been exposed to and integrated. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, although I maintain that without the real possibility of being shipped off and killed— Nobody cares. <laughs> it's possible the entire generation would have been less politicized. Say what you will about Vietnam. Yeah. It's, it's like I was saying. History doesn't go in a straight line. Yeah. It goes in all directions at once. Yeah. It's a, a rock thrown into a still pond That's and right. the ripples go. That's right. It was horrendous. The Vietnam War was horrendous and awful. And it also had the function of liberating mm -hmm. a lot of emotions and sending a lot of people on personal paths that mm -hmm. they wouldn't have gone on. And, I mean, we just have to accept the fact that nothing is strictly what it appears to be mm -hmm. at any one given moment. Yeah. And we can't know what we don't know. And so it's all about the investigation mm -hmm. and the experience. Hence, the importance personally of listening, of using your ears to trigger your emotion to find out where the truth is. Because if it's all about technology and the visual, man, you are going to buy a bridge sometime. Mm -hmm. Where do we park this uh, vehicle this year, Ben? Did we make any sense? Do you think this makes any sense? I don't think any of them made sense. And then people listened to them and found the sense in them. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can know. Parking this conversation is a yeah. bit like... Uh, parking a houseboat on the Mississippi. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> You're going to take out the pier on your yeah. way in. <laughs> well, Ben, happy birthday. Thank you for not being what you appear to be. Thank you for engaging in, a, in an auditory experience with me today, letting people's imaginations take them where they want to be taken as they hear us review your life once again. People always ask me about, is it easy or hard when we have these conversations or to talk like this and you know they say you know are you aware of it yeah. first of all i'm not aware of anything when we talk yeah and second of all it's a conversation that has been going on now i would say for 45 years even though you're only 45 years old yeah. because even when you were too young to speak mm -hmm. we were engaged in conversation mm -hmm. We absolutely were. So this is just ongoing. I don't yeah. know if it adds up to anything, but as long as we're ongoing. Our conversations are the most listened to episodes that I've ever done. Go figure. Actually, you know, it, 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 I started a record label called yeah. Go Jazz. Yeah. And uh, the accounting department was going to be called Go Figure. Yeah. Yeah. And the legal department, go screw yourself. <laughs> <laughs> ben Sidron, happy birthday. Thank I'll you, see you yeah. in a year. Okay. <laughs> I'll also see you next week at Crooners in Minneapolis. Oh, that's going to be, yeah. I love Crooners. And then we're going to... We're going to be at the Bremen as part of the Naranana Festival in Atlanta. That's on the 24th of August. We're going to be at the Green Mill in Chicago Big that weekend. shout out to Dave Gemelo, my yep. man. Dave Gemelo from the Green Mill. We're going to be on his stage, and we're also going to be in Madison so Tuesday the 20th, 22nd. 
Tuesday the 22nd. We're going to be in all those places. All those places, so I'll see you there, too. Okay, I'll see you there. All right. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.